Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen, to the Paul Sargero Show. Uh, we will be here until 5 o'clock this afternoon on November 2nd. Uh, it is 49 degrees here in Attleboro, Massachusetts. I hope everyone's having a wonderful weekend. We have a full show for you on tap today. Uh, today we have a special guest who has been on the show previously. Uh, it's also one of my favorite segments or ideas that we typically do here. Uh, in the past, I've done segments on the Faldu for Portuguese music. We've done segments um, the filmmaker Eric Monteiro out of California, Fishhook, a Portuguese love story. Uh, we've also had Professor uh, Francisco Fragundes on, who uh, discussed uh, Portuguese, uh, Portuguese literature last time. We discussed uh, Through a Portuguese Gate and uh, some of the Im immigrant uh, stories. So uh, today, uh, we also... We'll be discussing a Portuguese novel that Professor Francisco Fagundes has translated, and he is actually joining us uh, via the phone lines. Professor, can you hear us? Uh, yes, I can. Already can you hear so. me? <laughs> now I can, <laughs> yes. Okay, I'm sorry. Uh, good afternoon to you, and good afternoon to your listeners. Absolutely, thank you. So, uh, as I was saying, we, have, we will be discussing uh, your uh, translated novel, uh, Stormy uh, Isles and in Azorian. Um, tale. Uh, so to, to begin, we're going to cover uh, kind of all the questions we discussed previously, uh, but for our listeners, maybe who are first time joining us or haven't heard our first interview, could you tell us a little bit about uh, who you are and uh, kind of what you do currently? Okay. Um, I immigrated in 1963. I milked cows in the San, uh, San Joaquin Valley in California. A for about three, three and a half years, a cow broke my back. I could no longer milk cows, so I went to Los Angeles, became a dishwasher, and then I met uh, a woman, uh, several women, in fact, friends. Uh, this one was actually the girlfriend of a guy I was sharing an apartment with, and um, we used to have these discussions and so on. My English was by then quite good. I had studied a little English in Terceira. I had worked as a caddy, and of course I had been in America for three and a half years. So one day she said, why don't you go to school and, uh, you know, do something with your life? And I said, but I have never been to high school. How can I go to college? Um, she said, well, here in California, if you are uh, over 18, which of course I was, I was uh, 22, uh, you can go to college. And so I did. I went to college, stayed in this uh, junior college, as we called it then. Today we call it a community college, for three and a half years. Did the equivalent of high school and, and a couple of years of, um, of college, and then transferred to UCLA and... Uh, did my uh, B.A., actually a couple B.A.s there, a master's and my Ph.D. So in 1976, nine years after I started to, uh, to attend this college, I graduated with a Ph.D. Then I, um, I started looking for a job, found a job here at the University of Massachusetts in Amherst, uh, came here in 76, and uh, have been in Amherst ever since. Um, I uh, retired a couple of years ago. They asked me to go back for another year because they were in the process of trying to get somebody else. So I did go back <laughs> to 
taught for another year, and then last year, uh, finally, I retired. I uh, I am 75 years old. I hope, though, that um, I could go on and on because I, I love to teach. I absolutely miss my students, but uh, uh, life is life, and uh, we all age, and, uh, and there's a time to work, and there's a time to, to rest, so... Uh, I have finally rested, although I continue to write. I write, I publish, and uh, I will do so until I have my marvels about me. And uh, and I also like to do uh, interviews. Uh, and uh, thank you for inviting me for a second interview. Oh, well, my pleasure. Thank you for coming on. As I was saying earlier, uh, these segments are kind of my favorite ones, uh, being uh, meaning literature and and uh, kind of writing in general. Because uh, when I was at uh, the George Washington University, I had a professor, um, and I think I've mentioned it last time, but I took a Chinese uh, literature and translation course, which if you told me in high school I was going to be interested in literature, I would have called you guys nuts. Uh, but he, uh, mm-hmm. he really sparked my interest in literature, and then um, he actually... Uh, he would, he, what really got me interested in was he was telling me about uh, these Portuguese individuals who actually translated Chinese poetry. Uh, you know, yes, uh, yes, yes. Quite a number of them who actually lived in Macau, you know, which was Portuguese for 500 years, as you know. Absolutely. And so that's kind of what really got me interested. And then uh, when I got here, uh, once I finally had a radio program, I kind of wanted to educate the community on a lot of things. So we've done segments on Faldu, of course, you have been on, and then uh, Portuguese filmmaker out of California was on as well. So I really enjoy these segments, and I think the community is really going to get a, uh, some educational information out of here. So I'd like to start off with uh, kind of uh, tell us a little bit about uh, briefly what the Stormy Isles uh, is, um, what, what the bo- book is about, and then we'll kind of get into kind of why you're translating this or kind of why you want to tell its story. Okay. Well, uh, first I, I translated the novel in, in the 1990s. It took me approximately seven years. Obviously, I did other things. I taught, I wrote other things, but uh, it, it took seven years. It's a very, uh, not very, very long novel, but it's a very rich novel, a very learned novel, and so it takes a long, long time. Uh, translating is... Um, is like uh, a form of research as well. Um, I accepted to translate this novel uh, because Stormy Isles uh, is probably the richest uh, novel ever written uh, by an Azorian about the Azores. Um, It's... uh, uh, it, it's a historical novel on the one hand. Uh, it's also a geographical novel. It, it covers, you know, the span of the archipelago. It's a novel of manners, and it is also a, a love story. What it is not is primarily a love story. The love story uh, is uh, it, it sustains. It's the it, it's the mechanism that that uh, you know authors use to say. Uh, and show and, and, and talk about other things. But it is important in this case. Um, the action actually takes place in uh, between 1917 and 1919, two years. It's a very brief span of time uh, that the action, the main action, takes place. But then 
there are all kinds of detours. There are remembrances. There are going back. There are to, uh, the characters uh, talk about history, talk about, and so on. And so uh, Nemes uses many, many uh, strategies to cover as much time and as much uh, space as, as he possibly can. Um uh, uh, the novel is, of course, a work of fiction, so we cannot uh, say literally that it is about history, but uh, uh, he is very faithful to history to the extent that one can be and still uh, write fiction. Uh, the action uh, takes place on the islands of Fayal, primarily, Picou and Saint-Georges, even though Nemesio is from Terceira. Uh, the events on which it is based happened in Terceira, and uh, Nemesio often said that uh, he died in 78, he was born in 1901, uh, he often said that uh, uh, had he uh, uh, put the setting of the novel in uh, Terceira, people, uh, some people, would have recognized the characters uh, even under different names, so he felt he felt uh, uh, compelled to to set the novel in, on another island or group of islands. Uh, but I must say, although I am from Terceira, that he could not have chosen a better place to set the novel because uh, it is basically the islands of Fayal, uh, from which you can see Pico, you know, just a few a few miles uh, of offshore, and then you can actually see Saint George, you know, in, in a clear day. And uh, there is no more beautiful setting in the Azores uh, than these three islands. Uh, only the last chapter of the novel, of its 37 chapters, uh, half of it takes place uh, on Terceira. Uh, the author stated that since the events that take place in the novel, especially focusing on the main character, her name is Margarida, uh, a kind of alter ego of the author, uh, João Garcia, is the one who uh, is on stage with her, if it were a movie, uh, would be easy, uh, easily recognizable, and so he decided to transfer the action to the group of three islands to the west, as I said. In some ways, however, there are references to all the islands of the Azores through evocation in the novel of historical events. For example, uh, a huge earthquake on the island of São Miguel that took place in the 16th century. Uh, also, a volcanic eruption that took place in 1808. So, you know, he finds many strategies uh, to talk about what is... Uh, uh, important uh, to him. So it is a novel about uh, this clash which uh, happens between these two families and this uh, unrequited love story, but it is, of course, much, much more than that, and that much, much, much more is, uh, in my opinion, what the novel is essentially about. Absolutely. I, I couldn't agree more with uh, kind of the best... Uh Best setting for it. Uh, my father uh, is from Terceira, my mother from San Miguel. So the Azores are arguably some of the beautiful, most beautiful places, uh, beautiful islands in the the world, in my opinion. Yes, they are. They're very beautiful. 
Uh, we're going to take a quick break, and then we'll come back, and we'll discuss more of um, a Stormy Isles in uh, the translation. So stick around, ladies and gentlemen. We'll be right back after these messages. All right. Alrighty, folks, welcome back to the Paulo Sarguero Show. We'll be here until 5 o'clock this afternoon, November 2nd. Uh, today we are joined uh, with uh, by uh, Professor uh, Francisco Fregundes, uh, former uh, professor at UMass Amherst, discussing a book he has translated, uh, Stormy Isles, an Azorian uh, tale. Um, professor, before we left, we were mentioning kind of like the setting of Etreseda. And, you know, I find it, uh, it was so interesting how this all played out. Yesterday I was actually, I went to... Um, Amija Traceda over here in Pawtucket, and yeah, uh, there, yeah. absolutely, and we had a they had a, a contoria there, so they had uh, Eduardo uh, Eduardo Popola with uh, Victor Santos, and they did a kind of defeat in Jigahada afterwards. So I just think it's such a nice uh, segue into this interview uh, yeah. to, to kind of how we're uh, talking about this. Um, before we left, we kind of gave us a brief description of what this book is. Could you tell us a little bit about? In this novel, kind of, uh, what does a descendant of uh, uh, Tercerans kind of learn about the Azores in general and in uh, Tercerans in particular by reading this book? Well, uh, I would say I would say that uh, a person who is from uh, from from the Azores or, or descends from uh, immigrants uh, from the Azores who uh, did not know anything, or who only remembers a few fragments uh, of what uh, his or her parents or grandparents told them, uh, would really learn quite a bit, because uh, this novel goes back to the 15th century, because Margarida, whose name is actually Margarida Clark, Dumu. Clark, of course, is an English name because quite a number of Englishmen came to the Azores, especially in the uh, late 18th and early 19th century when the Azores had a huge, uh, a huge uh, orange uh, industry. Uh, it was really... Uh, industrial size. I mean, uh, oranges grew in the Azores uh, very well, and they were very much appreciated uh, a little bit all over the place. And uh, and there were ships, uh, packet ships, that actually transported these oranges to London. And so in, in relation to these, uh, to this business, and of course other businesses, uh, there were quite a number of Englishmen, and when the Azores was 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 settled, uh, because the islands were deserted, as you know, when they were found by the Portuguese in in the 15th century, uh, a number of families uh, came to the Azores who were from Flanders, and, and the reason for this is a bit uh, a bit uh, complicated, but also. Uh, not too complicated. Uh, the islands belonged uh, to Henry the Navigator. Okay, he was the guy who supervised, uh, although he was never uh, on the islands. But a sister of his, by the name of Isabel, was married uh, to the Count of Flanders, 
and the 100 years war between France and England uh, had happened uh, recently, and there were many families who were dispossessed and who, who needed to find some place to settle. So uh, Isabel, Henry's sister, asked her brother whether uh, they could send some of the, their own people, the, the Flemish, uh, to the Azores to settle, and, and lo and behold, he said yes, and so they came. Uh, we don't know how many people came who were uh, Flemish, but we do know that there are many uh, place names that uh, hail from Flanders, and of course many uh, names of families. Dumu is one of them. Uh, so... Uh, uh, Nemesio uh, picks uh, the name of uh, of his character, which gives them then an opportunity to talk about the history, the Flemish side of the uh, Azorian uh, settlement. Uh, on the part of her mother, she is English, which means that he then has an opportunity to talk about England. And then Margarita likes to read novels uh, and history books. So through her readings, uh, the reader learns about the earthquake uh, uh, in Villafranca in the 16th century. Uh, and through a ballad that she reads, uh, the reader uh, is, is, is brought to... to uh, to, to the realization that there was a volcanic eruption, uh, and so on and so forth. And as he goes or she goes from island to island, we learn more and more and more. So it is one of those novels that has a uh, broad enough setting, both, uh, both geographically and, and temporally, uh, for a person to, uh, to learn uh, the history, to learn the geography, and then, of course, the characters themselves. Uh, she belongs to the highest class, that is, the aristocracy of the Azores. Uh, João Garcia, her uh, suitor, belongs to the, uh, to the middle class, uh, to the bourgeois class, and uh, individuals who talk uh, who, who work for the for these two families are of course peasants. Some of them uh, are farmers, little farmers, uh, and then of course since the the Lumus, uh, fortune is beginning to sort of fragment because of the bad habits of the patriarch of the family, uh, one of the businesses that they have is uh, is a whale fishery, and so. <laughs> Uh, that gives us, uh, or the author, a pretext to talk about the Americans, who are the ones who introduced coastal uh, whaling to the Azores. So, as you can see, he strategizes to bring in all this information, and so we deal with this information not in a dry historical manner, but in a fictional context. Okay, where he makes it intensely pleasurable uh, to learn about this stuff. So uh, the uh, the sweetness of the pill is basically the love story that uh, that doesn't go very far, and 
And what the author basically wants to convey is information about the Azores. Uh, and uh, it is a delightful uh, novel because it has all of these uh, all of these elements. So if you knew uh, absolutely nothing about the Azores, after reading this novel, and I'm not suggesting that people not read a history book about the Azores, but after reading this novel, you would have a pretty good idea uh, about the founding, about the origins of the people who established themselves in the Azores, about the class structure, about religious ceremonies, including the Holy Ghost celebration, and so on and so on. Absolutely. Now, I know you I know you mentioned it was a fiction, but in terms of historical context, is it pretty accurate, this novel? Yes, it, it is pretty accurate. Obviously, uh, since it occurs in a fictional, a fictional context, one would want, for example, to know what happened right after uh, right after the uh, the huge earthquake in Villafranca, we will want to know how the island managed to survive and so on. Obviously, that is not going to happen because then we will have a history book. But we do have enough, okay? We do have enough to actually provoke the reader or challenge the reader to, to find out more. And, of course, since today, not when the novel was published, which was 1944, the year I was born, but uh, today, you know, you can easily find on the Internet, uh, you know, some explanation about the Azores. You can actually view some of these places, which Nemesia, having died in 78, actually had no access to. So uh, it is a pleasure to read the novel, say, and, uh, and have a computer in front of you or your uh, smartphone and, and, uh, and, and look at the places... Uh, that uh, that you are reading about, and uh, and you can uh, easily do that. As far as the history of the people who uh, inhabited those islands, who settled on those islands, they were mostly Portuguese, of course, but there were many others. There were many others. Uh, we don't know for sure. History does not uh, incontrovertibly teach us uh, how many uh, uh, how many Flemish, for example, came to the Azores. But uh, some will est- estimate that there were about 2,000 individuals, uh, others a few more, others a few less. Uh, so we really, but we do know, because the proof is, uh, is, is, is there on the place names, on the, uh, on the names of, of individuals, of families, uh, especially from the islands of uh, uh, Fayal, uh, Piku, uh, Saint George, even Terceira. There are quite a number of uh, of names like Bukang, which is a uh, which is a a corruption of a uh, of a Flemish. Flemish is a language that is very similar to Dutch. Uh, so um, yeah, we, we we learn quite a bit about this history, and this history is not invented. It's it's history that uh, that is very reliable. Absolutely. Folks, we are joined uh, with, uh, by uh, Professor uh, Francisco Fragundes discussing a novel he has translated, uh, The Stormy Isles, an Azorian uh, tale. Uh, we're going to take a quick break, and then we'll get back uh, into more of uh, this, uh, the reading and kind of what our listeners or uh, readers of this book will learn. So stick around. We'll be right back after these messages. 
Alrighty, folks, welcome back to the Paulo Salguero Show. We will be here until 5 o'clock this afternoon. Uh, today we are joined by uh, Professor Francisco Fragundes from uh, UMass Amherst discussing a novel he has translated, uh, a Sto Stormy Isles, an Azorian tale. Uh, kind of just just discussing overview of what the uh, what the novel is, kind of what our listeners can learn from it, and then uh, we'll get into more detail. But uh, professor, as we move forward, I was curious: when was the first time you heard of this novel, or the first time you actually read this novel? Well, uh, everybody who is from the Azores, uh, I was not an educated person. I had a fourth grade education when I left, but I love to read. Sometimes I think that if I did not love to read as much as I as I did, uh, I would never have been, or I would never have chosen, you know, to become a professor. Um, I love to read, of course, little love stories, most of them translated uh, from 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 American literature. I read I read a lot of Zane Grey from some reason. Uh, Alexander Dumas, you know, all of those books that uh, you know. Uh, are still read today by uh, by young adults, so that is one of the. Uh, and I have heard of this book, but I did not have money to buy uh, to buy this book. So the first time I read Mautempo uh, no Canal, as it is called in Portuguese, was when I was a student at UCLA. I went to UCLA in 1970, so I must have read the novel. 71, 72, somewhere around there. And uh, first and foremost, I was overwhelmed because it is a novel that uh, presupposes that you know something about music, that you know something about painting, that you know something about history, that you know something about this and about that. And it's a very learned novel, which does not mean that uh, you have to have you know, a PhD in literature to read it, no. But, you know, it's, 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 it's a demanding novel. And uh, I enjoyed it, but, of course, uh, I didn't have then the wherewithal uh, to be able to really get as deep into a book as uh, makes you not only love it, but uh, stay with it for the, rest, for the rest of your life. So when I came to... To, to Massachusetts, uh, as I said, uh, uh, in the 1990s, uh, Onesimo Meda, Professor Onesimo Meda from Brown University, uh, asked me to translate the novel because he wanted to publish the novel uh, at the uh, at the at the press, you know, uh, in the press that they have uh, uh, in, in what was then called. Uh, Center for Portuguese Studies uh, and, and, and Culture, or something. Uh, today it's called uh, Department of Portuguese and Brazilian Studies. And I said, yes, but I said, Onésimo, this is an extremely demanding novel. My native language is Portuguese, not English. And he says, oh, don't, don't worry about it. You know, I'll find somebody to then review it and so on. So I said, okay. So I propose that we translate it, that I translate it, but then the final version has to be done by me and George, George Monteiro, Professor George Monteiro, uh, who uh, is a great friend of mine today. And, uh, and so I finished, uh, you know, after seven years of work, as I, as I mentioned, approximately seven years of work, I sent him the novel. I said, Onesimo, this is now the time for George to, uh, 
to take a look at it and uh, and then let me know, you know, when we can get together or how we should get together for him to, uh, you know, to review this thing. And, and uh, well, I don't know when it was, but it was not too long after that. Uh, he, I get a message from him, and the message was that George had read the novel, and George said that the novel was fine and that he didn't have... Um, anything to do with the novel, that the novel was my translation. And I said, oh, my God, uh, could these guys have played this trick on me? Could I? Could they have encouraged me to translate the novel uh, and accepted that I do it with George when I proposed that it be done with George so that I would do it? Because had they told me, no, 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 you have to do it by yourself, I probably would have said, no, no, I'm sorry, but I can't do this by myself. And uh, because I had translated poetry and other things, it was always with somebody else. Uh, and so uh, I, I decided, you know, to review it again. And uh, it's okay, you know, if they think that it's good enough. Uh, George is, uh, is a person uh, I have come to admire. I consider him a kind of uh, mentor and so on. So uh, I published the novel. Uh, in 1998, and uh, and then discovered, as I reread it several times, that there were little things here and there that I wish I could, I could change. You know, it's always like that. And uh, and so uh, about a year and a half ago, I was contacted by Mario Preda, who is, you know, at the front of. Uh, of the uh, of the press uh, of the press today, uh, the the Tagus Press as it's now called, and uh, and Mario uh, uh, asked me if if I wanted to you know uh, review the novel and and publish it again to publish a second edition, and uh, and I said Mario, it's it's a very tempting offer, but you know. I am retired or about to retire. I was still working, but I was uh, only uh, a couple of months away from retirement. And uh, and I said, okay, you know, because, uh, in fact, uh, you know, it's something that I have always wanted to do, you know, revisit some of the, of the, of the things that I did. And I have some ideas for improving uh, some of the, uh, of the and, and, of course, some mistakes that always, uh, always, especially in a book of this size, uh, it is uh, right now 300, and it's a small print, 378 pages. You know, that's that's quite a long novel, and uh, and so I accepted it and worked for another year. And uh, at the end of that year, uh, Mario then started working with uh, with with the book and with the copy editor and so on, which took a few months and. Uh, and so a few months ago, I think the official official date is May of this year, uh, the novel came out. And it's uh, beautiful, and it's, uh, I think, uh, one thing I know for sure, it has fewer mistakes, uh, fewer mistakes than it did the first time, or at least does not have the mistakes that it did uh, uh, the first time, and uh, but I suppose that if I were to live another fifty years or another even twenty-five years, which I am sure I'm not, hope I am not, but if I were, I probably will find another reasons or more reasons to then have a 
third edition because that's the way it is. I mean, when you translate, you just uh, you you just don't have it satisfied with what you did. It's, it's a huge responsibility. This is a major author in Portuguese literature, and here is my name on this. And I am not a native speaker of English, and uh, you know, so uh, it, it is a big responsibility. It's uh, it, it may even sound like an arrogant. Uh, an act of arrogance on my part, you know, to translate one of the best novels of the most famous novels uh, that has ever been written in Portugal uh, and do it by myself uh, with obviously the help that, that uh, you know, somebody always reads it, uh, you know, you pay somebody to read it. Uh, for mistakes, you you have a copy editor working with you and so on, but ultimately the responsibility is yours because the decisions uh, come from you. So, you know, it's one of those things. I, I like challenges, I guess. Most of us like challenges. I like challenges, and I am willing, you know, to have the book out there, and uh, and I'm not afraid, you know, and if somebody uh, finds a mistake, uh, well, uh, I also have translated about ten books, uh, perhaps seven books, uh, ten books altogether, but seven books from English to Portuguese, and I am sure uh, that there are mistakes there as well, because uh, who knows everything there is to know about one's own language or one's second language, you know. So you do the best you can, because if you stopped yourself uh, from doing things because you are not perfect, then you would never do anything. And so um, I don't aim for perfection. I aim uh, to do the best that I can do, and that's all I can do. Absolutely. Now, when in the process of translating a novel, and I always ask the same um, kind of uh, individuals I know that have, have translated poetry from a different uh, language to English, is it translating verbatim, or are you still trying to translate to try and get the same story, but at the same time uh, maybe convey your own uh, description of certain things? Or you, Do you know what I'm trying to say? Yes. Uh, it's, it's an excellent question. Uh, it's an excellent question. Uh, I would answer it this way. Uh, no, you cannot translate word for word because uh, that is what is called in, in, uh, in translation uh, jargon uh, a crib. Uh, you don't do that. Uh, if that would be my advice to translators uh, of prose or poetry, if you have to check the dictionary more than once in a great while, uh, then you should not uh, translate. You should uh, do something else. Uh, if you are translating about uh, a novel about a particular field, uh, in this case I would include history, I would include history of music, I would include uh, a little bit about the history of, of visual art, uh, of course, the history of the Azores. If you don't know anything about these things, then you should not translate the novel. In other words, if you were to ask me and say, well, I give you $10 million to translate a novel about baseball, okay? I would say, I am sorry, but I don't know anything about baseball. I couldn't possibly, I couldn't possibly uh, translate. Let me give you a, a specific example uh, of, of what I'm saying. Uh, there is a chapter, I don't remember which one it is, the novel has 37 of them, 
that has to do with billiards, what we here call pool. Okay, and I have a son who is crazy about pool and, and thinks that he is a pool ace and so on and so forth. And uh, but I don't know anything about pool, but absolutely zero. I know there is that stick, and I know that there are those balls of different colors, and I know that there are four holes or, or six holes or whatever, how many holes, and the, the balls I have, have to go into those holes, but that's about it. And I said, oh, my God, how am I going to translate something that I don't know anything about? So that's why it took me seven years. I went and read four or five books about billiards, about pool. So I could understand. So I could discuss. So I could sound as though I knew what I was doing, you see. Uh, so just think about it. Uh, you don't know anything about a particular topic, whether it be sports whether it be chemistry, whether it be whatever, and you start translating something that is substantially about that, uh, you are bound to make a mess of it, okay? So that is the number one thing. Look at the novel, read the novel, what does it deal with? If it deals with something that you know nothing about, then you are not the person to trade it, because it's not just a knowledge of language, it's knowledge of subject matter. You can know language very, very well. But if you don't have knowledge of subject matter, you are the wrong translator for that particular book. Okay? So um, you translate, uh, you translate, Paulo, in, in my perspective, uh, you translate the novel, but you don't translate word for word what the original has. You try to aim for what that novel would be like or would read like into the language into which you are translating it. Okay? So sometimes you have to negotiate. Sometimes you have to change things a little bit. Uh, so that the final product does not have that odor of translated stuff, okay? At the same time that you have to respect the original. In other words, you cannot arbitrarily change the original, because that would be a crime. And, uh, and in order to, uh, to, to, to manage those two things that seem to be and are contradictory, you, you, you have to invest a lot of time, and you have to invest a lot of energy, and, and, you, have to, and you have to approach it uh, humbly, very humbly, okay? If you have an arrogant attitude that you know it all, that you can do it all as a no, you have to be very humble about it, and you have to, uh, to find out, and you have to be prepared to go read uh, to go find out, to ask other people. Uh, I spent a lot of time in the library. This was not, uh, you know, I used the dictionary very little. Once in a while you have to go to the dictionary, and actually the dictionaries, I must say, you know, uh, in 
the case of Nemesio, because you know the, the novel takes place in 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 the Azores, and 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 Nemesio talks a lot about agriculture, and he talks a lot about about fishing. He talks a lot about areas that are archaic here at that time, things that we had to two hundred years prior. Uh, you know, the coastal whaling, the coastal whaling that is done in the Azores is an example of it. That's coastal whaling that was started by the Dabneys. I could talk about that family. Uh, in 1850s, 1852, thereabouts. But that is the kind of coastal whaling that was practiced in New England at the end of the 18th century where the Wapanoag Indians were uh, hunting whales that way. You see, so whaling in the Azores was at least 150 years behind. And the language that was used was also old-fashioned. And you have to take all of these things into account if you are going to do it fairly successfully. I mean, to translate a simple love story, anybody can do that. That's a different story. Okay, but if you are translating a demanding, a challenging uh, novel, uh, you have to accept it with humility, and you have to realize, no, I cannot do this in six months. No, if I am a professor and I have other duties and so on, this is going to take me a long, long, long time. I would never, never accept to translate a novel and, uh, you know, and, and give a deadline, you know, by, uh, you know, another six months, seven months, eight months, I will have it ready for you. I have no idea how long it would take. Well, in this case, I did it because it was an Azorian writer, because it was a novel that I liked very much, and because it was one of the greatest challenges of my life as a professor and uh, who does not like a big, big challenge? I mean, to do something that everybody can do uh, is no fun, at least not to me. So uh, that's what I did. Did I succeed? Well, obviously, it's up to the readers and up to the experts to uh, to judge. But uh, I did the best that I could, that I can uh, uh, state without any fear of, of, of self-contradiction. I did the best I could, and I think it is uh, it is well translated. Does it mean that in the future, 20 years from now, 50 years from now, 100 years from now, uh, my translation is still acceptable? Probably not, because uh, it is customary to say that every 25 years, no matter how successful a translation is, it needs to be redone. So 100 years from now, you know, uh, my English, uh, or anybody's English, is going to sound like, you know, English of a hundred years ago. <laughs> sure, and absolutely. So, uh, and so it goes, but it does not mean that uh, because language ages, uh, like we age, uh, it does not mean that you shouldn't do it. So I'm very happy that uh, the first translation into English, and now it's revised uh, second edition was done by me, who also happened to be an Azorian, who happened to be from Terceira, and who also happened to have known Vitorin Mezio personally. Absolutely. Folks, we are in studio with uh, Professor Francisco Fragundes. We're going to take a quick break, and then we'll get back uh, into uh, Stormy Isles and kind of uh, maybe any connections it has to the U.S. So stick around. We'll be right back after these messages. 
Alrighty, folks, welcome back to the Paul Sargero Show. We'll be here until 5 o'clock this afternoon. Uh, it is about almost 5 minutes to 4 o'clock. Uh, we were in studio with Professor uh, Francisco Fragundes discussing Stormy Isles, uh, an Azorian uh, tale uh, that he has translated. Uh, Professor, uh, before, because uh, we, we have to take a 4 o'clock uh, break as well, so I didn't want to get too much into um, the connections, because I really want you to articulate and kind of go in depth with that at the after uh, four. But you had mentioned uh, earlier that uh, before we uh, had our break, kind of that that old language that was written previously in the original, and that how it's uh, you know sometimes you have to go back to the dictionary and see it. Just because out of my own curiosity, what are some of maybe uh, certain Portuguese phrases that were used back then, or words that probably are non-existent uh, today? Well, uh, I would mention uh, one particular area that is very interesting, and I could talk about it uh, a bit more and uh, and how I resolved it, uh, which is not the only solution, uh, is uh, the whalemen, and there are about four or five chapters that touch upon whaling, because, as I said, part of the fortune of the Dulmus is in the whale fishery. And um, since the Azorians, uh, fishermen, uh, learned coastal whaling from Americans, American whalemen, uh, who called on the ports of Orta and, uh, and, and other ports in the Azores, they used, uh, of course, uh, English terminology. Uh, and this English terminology was not easily translatable by people who were, for the most part, illiterate people. So uh, they will use these terms, uh, the uh, the whalemen use these terms. And now I am faced with two uh, two situations. One, translate these terms back into into English. For, ex- for example, pulayet, pulayet, pulayet. They are uh, uh, they are uh, moving towards uh, uh, a whale, and they are saying pulayet, pulayet. Now, what does what does pulayet mean? Pulayet is the is the whaleman's translation of the expression pull ahead, pull ahead, pull ahead. Now, if I translate this back to pull ahead, I will have destroyed some of the exotic aspect of the novel. If I leave it as just pull ahead, pull ahead, <laughs> people will not know what I am saying. So how do you solve a problem like that? Uh, that is something that actually I went... Uh, to give a lecture on this novel at the uh, Nantucket Whaling Museum, and I'll leave it for after the after the break to tell you how I dealt with with, with that with that situation. That, I, I could have chosen something else, but I think that that is rather interesting. Another one that is somewhat related to that is the terminology of bullfighting. Because at the end of the novel, before they set out to São Miguel to catch a ship that will take them to uh, to various countries in Europe, 
uh, 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 Margarida Clark de Ulmo and her husband, who is not Juan Garcia, Juan Garcia uh, never managed to, uh, to win her hand, uh, her husband, whom she does not love because she was sacrificed by her family to this very rich St. George family to save the family fortune, so Margarida was sacrificed. Uh, and Margarida is going to uh, is going to head out uh, on this trip. But before she does, she is in Angra and she is going to watch a bullfight. Now, Nemesio uses the terminology which actually comes from Spanish uh, for a bullfight. So, how do you translate that? Well, uh, I will also. Uh, explain to you how I managed to translate uh, this language that comes from Spanish, but which is also used in Portuguese, uh, and so on. Uh, I also had um, a way out for that that I hope uh, uh, works out for, for the readers. Uh, so those are two areas that, uh, in addition to all the problems of translating, uh, you encounter in a major novel that can give you pause because it is something that even if you had a dictionary, that dictionary would not have a translation for that. Okay, so it is up to your own wits to find a solution. So in one hand, uh, on the one hand, the, the, the wailing uh, the whaling language, and on the other, the bullfighting terminology. How did I handle it, and how has or have other translators handled it? Absolutely. Folks, we are in studio with Professor Francisco uh, Fregundes uh, discussing his book, uh, Stormy Isles, and kind of translating uh, novels in general. We're going to take our top of the hour break, and we'll come back. We'll finish up our discussion on uh, kind of translating um, as we just talk kind of some old language that maybe is non-existent now and how he went about doing it. And then we'll finish up with the novel and uh, kind of uh, connections that were possibly made uh, with the Azores in the U.S. So stick around. We'll be right back after these messages. Alrighty, folks, welcome back to the Paul Sargero Show. Uh, 405, November 2nd. We will be here until 5 o'clock this afternoon, as always. Uh, today, we are joined uh, by uh, Professor Fr uh, Francisco Fregundes discussing his uh, translated novel, Stormy Isles, an Azorian uh, tale. Uh, before our break, we kind of discussed translating old language that's kind of non existent in today's. Um, kind of day and age. You know, it's, I always find that interesting, Professor, kind of language that probably is non-existent because, funny story, I took uh, a couple courses of Portuguese both in high school and then later on in college, and sometimes words that I thought were Portuguese was almost, it was, <laughs> that I learned growing up was actually a Portuguese slash English mix-up. Uh, for example, I remember, uh, I, I'm trying to think, I don't know if it was maybe a hamper or so that we were learning and the teacher goes, you know, how do you say hamper? And growing up, we always said basqueta, which, which was like a made-up word in our household, or yeah, even, yeah. or even uh, like store. A lot of uh, people over, or at least we're uh, in Atterborough and then Fall River, hardly ever say loja. They usually always say ishtua. So Stua, it was, yes, 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 <laughs> so yes. it's words like that. I'm over here saying it in Portuguese class, and my teacher's laughing because he's heard it too, and they have said it, and he's like, no, those are almost uh, kind of like that English. 
input into it. So um, before our break, you kind of mentioned kind of that old language that's non-existent. So could you tell us a little bit about encountering that and how to and how did you go about solving it? Okay. Uh, yes. First of all, uh, those words and they differ a little bit uh, from the east coast to the west coast. Uh, but words like marqueta, stoa, troc, airicus, etc. Those are words that are called uh, anglicisms or borrowed words. Uh, they are common to all languages, and you'll be surprised that languages like Portuguese or like English uh, are actually made up are actually made up uh, that way. That is to say, if Portuguese immigrants who use that language, and I used that language in California to be able to communicate when I first came here as an immigrant, if they were left in an area that was um, isolated, that didn't have access, uh, people didn't go to school, and so on, uh, a new language would emerge from that. And that is how Portuguese and French and Spanish and Catalan emerged from Latin. Uh, so there is nothing extraordinary about it. That's how languages form. Languages come out of other languages, which come out of other languages, which in turn produce languages. Okay, uh, now going back to what I was talking about before the break, I saw myself, and there are probably a few dozen of those terms, uh, having to deal uh, with whales, um, uh, terms that, uh, let me give you a few examples that I, uh, that I remember right now. Um, uh, for uh, whalemen uh, in their little uh, whale boats, um, when they saw a, a whale uh, spouting, they would say, there she blows, or simply blows. Well, in the Azores, it's blows, blows. Uh, then, uh, to give you another example of a term that is used uh, in the Azores, uh, is... Uh, is the term froca. Uh, froca is a kind of jacket that the whalemen uh, used, and which, of course, in the Azores was also used. But since they didn't have the exact same thing, it was used to refer to a shirt. Uh, so these kinds of things uh, may not seem very, very important, but if the author uses them uh, to make the novel more colorful, there is nothing in the world you can do about translating them because they never uh, were uh, put in a dictionary. So what do you do? Well, you could, as I knew I could, uh, just translate them back into English, and they would be in, in, in English, and nobody would ever know that they had uh, in Portuguese, uh, in the original, not, 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 been, uh, uh, not been in Portuguese. So what I decided to do was, I decided to leave them as the whalers uh, and the whalemen uh, use them, 
okay? And then at the end of the novel, I have a number of uh, end notes. Okay, so let me read a little passage of the of the uh, uh, of the text for you to see how uh, how this can can actually work. I mean, it, it does not uh, it does not happen in uh, on every page because then it would you would, it would tax the the reader's patience. Uh, but let me read a very short paragraph from the novel. Could it be? Opening the window, she looked over the parish's little houses for some kind of confirmation. The smoke from the pots cooking colored greens rose from the chimneys. The clock in the tower of Candelaria Church struck the first hour of noon. There was no one on the streets or in the alleys, except for two barefoot children squatting down looking for black leeches in the mud. But suddenly a door half opened, and then another, and another, and in the twinkling of an eye, men and women poured out of their houses and crowded the footpaths and alleys. Look over there, Balea, Balea, Blaws, Blaws, Mariquinhos, have you seen my men? And so on. So, that Blaws, Blaws, I could have translated it into English, there she blows, but it would kill, you know, the... A, a, a little flavor. It's like it's like putting a little bit of pepper, you know, a little bit of uh, cinnamon on, on the porridge. You know, it, it, it sounds it sounded better. So there are probably twenty, thirty of these terms, and uh, I, I sprinkle them like that. On the one hand, I don't want to irritate the reader. Uh, on the other, I don't want to also destroy the effect because. The you used it for exotic effect, and I wanted to uh, to also uh, create the same sensation. So, uh, for an English reader, the English reader is going to see how his original English was was used. At the same time, that if he should have any d- doubts, in some cases, it's self-explanatory because the context makes it clear. This is blows, blows could not possibly mean anything else but blows, blows. Uh, but so that is, that is one way that I handle that particular issue. The other one has to do with, um, as I said, with, uh, uh, with, with, with bullfighting. And, uh, and bullfighting, of course, uh, when I got to that chapter, uh, I said, my gosh, uh, I, I have to be very careful, and I have to look for precedents. Uh, of course, luckily for me, I remembered having read uh, Hemingway. Uh, I am not a great fan of Hemingway. I love his short stories. I don't like his novels. I don't like that he says, she says, he says, she says, he says, she says, which a Portuguese writer of the 19th century resolved very, very, very easily. So it, it, it's one of those things. I, lo- I love his short stories. I don't particularly like his novels. But I remembered having read several of his novels, A Farewell to, a farewell to Arms, uh, The Sun Also Rises. Oh, my gosh, The Sun Also Rises has, has a ball fight. So let's see. Let's see how Hemingway does it. Okay, and then there is another book of Hemingway's in which he talks strictly about bulls. Okay, he was crazy about bullfights. So those two books showed me how Hemingway does. 
what Hemingway does and what I ended up doing in imitation of Hemingway is you translate you translate what is being said into 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 English okay but at the same time you have an or and give the the original Spanish which of course coincides with the Portuguese and sometimes is slightly different from the Portuguese and you put that in italics you see so there are many many ways of uh, doing this so in that case I saved uh, I saved the the um, uh, the original uh, uh, the original uh, uh, language uh, the original uh, uh, effect of exoticness at the same time that I will always have the reader not be in the dark because there's nothing more frustrating than to be reading uh, than to be reading uh, something and all of a sudden the translator throws a word at you in a language that you never that you never heard. So let me give you an example of that. The Sparta or swordsman himself will work with cape and red cloak, the bulls of his choice. All police regulations will be in force in the arena. The doors open at three and the public is welcome to attend the embulamento or padding of the bull's horns. The esteemed public is hereby notified that there are no special discount tickets available. Olé, olé, bring on the matadors. You see, so you play with the language a little bit, you, you stay within the exotic, but at the same time you don't uh, give the reader more than he or she uh, uh, can handle. So that's how I... Uh, I, I, you know, did those, those, those two, which are actually very important because one affects about five chapters, uh, chapters of the novel and the other one affects another chapter. So six chapters of the novel, uh, I had to find ways to translate those special uh, language. One, I gave the Portuguese, which is what Hemingway does sometimes, and he has other ways. I didn't like the other ways. And uh, and 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 in the case of the of, of the whaling terminology, by just keeping it essentially the way it was, just modifying it slightly, and then giving uh, giving a footnote so that uh, people who are curious, uh, even though the context makes it clear for the most part, but those who are curious can also uh, go there. And I will say. Uh, term uh, derives from English, so, so and so. Absolutely, very interesting. Folks, we are going to take a quick break. Uh, we are in studio with Professor Francisco Fragundes. When we get back, we're going to discuss um, kind of the relationship, whether or not there's a relationship with uh, the kind of U.S., uh, between the relationships of the, the novel and the U.S. Uh, when we get back, uh, we will take a quick break, and we'll be right back after these messages. Alrighty, folks, welcome back to the Paul Sargero Show. We will be here until 5 o'clock this afternoon. We are talking with Professor Francisco Fergundes uh, uh, from UMass Amherst, kind of discussing his novel. He has translated in a second edition, uh, a St- a Stormy Isles in Azorian Tale. 
Um, Professor, before the break, we said we kind of discussed, uh, I had the, the, we were thinking about uh, whether or not, is there any relationship between this novel and the United States? Uh, yes, there is, as a matter of fact. Um, there are two very important uh, uh, connections. Uh, I'll discuss first uh, the one that I find particularly interesting and uh, which your uh, listeners probably uh, have heard about or know something about, and that is um, the impact that this family uh, from Boston, one of the Boston Brahmin families whose origins are actually in Canada, the Dabney family. These Dabneys uh, were a very uh, wealthy family and became super wealthy in the Azores. They went to the Azores as uh, counsel. One of them, John Bass Dabney, went to the Azores as the first counsel of the United States. Actually, I don't know if your if your listeners are aware that the first consulate that the United States had, that the United States opened abroad, was in the Azores. Wow, that's very interesting. I didn't know that. Yeah. And this family went to the Azores, and they, they stayed in the Azores for about a century. You know, after the father came the son, and then the grandson, and then the great-grandson, and so on and so forth. And um, they also became uh, ship Chandlers, that is, they they established those stores that supply the ships. The ships, of course, were whaling, whaling ships. And it was the Dabneys. It was a member of this, of, of a descendant of the original Dabney, who in 1832 uh, tried uh, to uh, establish coastal whaling. It didn't work out that that time, but then in 1850, 152, uh, they tried again, and this time it it, uh, it 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 went it went much better. It went well, and so coastal whaling. By coastal whaling, of course, we mean you don't hunt for whales in the high seas. You uh, you have the little boats, you know, which are called. Uh, whale boats in the Azores, they call them canoes, canoes. And, um, and when a whale is sighted, you know, the fishermen, I think six, four, five, six men in these little boats, uh, you know, row towards the whale and one, one harpoons the whale and, and, you know, it goes from there. So that's what they had. And uh, this, like I said, started in the 1850s, and um, and it only stopped on the island of Pico, where it lasted the longest. Uh, it spread to all the islands, with one or two exceptions, but it lasted the longest on the island of Pico, which also has, uh, you know, a fairly large, by Azorian standards, uh, whaling museum. Uh, it stopped in 19, uh, 1987, so you can see that uh, practically all the countries of the world have given up on whaling, and the Azores were still, were still chasing whales. I remember when I was a child, 
I don't know if you have been to Biscoitos, which is one of the towns, one of the actually well-known town because it has a natural swimming pool, which is the, the ocean brings in water as natural, a natural pool. And uh, I remember as a child going to bullfights there, and I remember these huge cauldrons. There are two of them, you know, rusted. And I, I always wondered what that was and how, how come those things were there until, until my godfather explained to me that is where they uh, they tried, as the the term is that is used by whalemen, is uh, to try the the uh, whale uh, blubber, where they where they they burned, you know, where they heated the whale blubber until uh, until it melted. So those things were still there, and I must have been around. Um, I must have been in my teens. I'm 75, but you know, this was about 60 years ago. Um, so on the island of Terceira, we also had had, although we were never, never, uh, as the people from Pico, who are, who are the best known fishermen. That uh, they are the ones who, in this country, uh, fished for tuna in, in in San Diego, and they became associated with uh, with the sea and so on. So, because the Azores is really uh, an archipelago of uh, uh, people who like to work the land, who, who work the land. They are farmers. We are farmers in the Azores, not fishermen. Um, it, it's a myth that, you know, because uh, we hail from islands, we're necessarily fishermen. No, our, our shores are very high, and, and, uh, and people are actually scared of the sea. Uh, the exception being, uh, you know... Uh, Pequenses who, uh, who are very, uh, who are very, uh, very much uh, passionate uh, about the sea. So the the Dabnis founded this dynasty of Dabnis and these little palaces that you can still see today, especially on the island of Fayal. And um, and of course, by the time that we get to the characters in our novel. Uh, 1917, 1919, the, the Clark Dulmus had, uh, had a whale fishery, you know, and um, that was part of their, um, uh, of their wealth. So uh, this gives uh, Nemesio a pretext to do several things. On the one hand, uh, to tell the history of the Dabnis, which is extremely important in the Azores, not only not only on the island of Fayal, but on several several islands. Um, okay, so that that's 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 one thing. Uh, on the other hand, it also uh, gives Nemesio uh, occasion to talk about uh, people who did not stay in the Azores and therefore did not go into coastal whaling, but went into pelagic whaling, which is, of course, whaling on the high seas. And then um, one clearly uh, is prepared for that, the reader is prepared for that, because of the four epigraphs uh, heading the novel, one of them is from Moby Dick, and it goes like that, Azure Sailor. Ascending and pitching the tambourine up the scuttle. Here you are, Pip, 
and there's the windless bits. Up you mount. Now, boys. So that is quoted in English from Moby Dick. So you know that whaling is going to play a part in the novel as you read uh, as you read that, that epigraph uh, before reading the first paragraph of the novel. So that, that is one aspect that leads to whaling, that leads to uh, other things uh, that we cannot uh, further discuss because it would take too long. The other connection is, is perhaps even more interesting in a way because it has to do with immigration. One of the characters, one of the friends of the main character, of the main male character of the novel, Juan Garcia, is a fellow by the name of the Mian Serpa. This Damian Serpa, as it turns out, had been to Boston. And supposedly, and here things get a little bit, uh, get a little bit fancy, supposedly uh, had worked in a pencil factory in Boston. I had no idea if, uh, if, uh, if Boston ever had a pencil factory. The, the point is, it, it's not that important to... The important uh, thing is that the Mion Serpa was in Boston, and the Mion Serpa was interested in what is called, at that time, metapsychics. Now, metapsychics is what today we would call the paranormal, you know, contacting spirits, you know, that sort of thing. And the Mion Serpa... One day that he goes out with Juan Garcia and others to, to drink and to, you know, paint the town red and so on, tells a story. And this story is very, very important. It's a story about this German girl called Gret Spiel, whose father had a dairy farm in Los Angeles, and the father got in trouble financially, and one day he locks himself in a room with his daughter and says, well, I give you two choices. Either you marry this friend of mine who will save us from financial ruin, or I'm going to blow my brains out. And the poor girl goes and marries the guy. And unbeknownst to both father and son, this guy, big scoundrel, was actually married in, in, in Europe. So he ruined his daughter, who had a boyfriend whom she loved very much. So Gret dies of a broken heart. And her boyfriend, who is actually Spanish, a guy by the name of Jimenez, tries to get in touch with Gret. And so the Mion tells the story of this medium who, uh, who gets in touch with Gret and he uh, recreates the seance at which this happens. Now, in the Azores, even in my time, there was also a lot of uh, superstition about uh, 
what we call almas do outro mundo, spirits from the other world. And so that is interesting, that is important, but the most important thing, uh, Paulo, is that this story that is being told of a girl who has to abandon her boyfriend and whose father tells her, you have to choose between my blowing my brains out or marrying this older guy who will save us from financial ruin, is exactly, not exactly, but is very similar to the story of Margarida. Because in the story of Margarida, an uncle of her says, look, you have to help your family. I know very well that you don't love André Barreto very much, but you have to, because by marrying him, you save the honor of all of us, you save your father from ruin, and so on. So Margarida is sacrificed by marrying this André Barreto, whom she does not love, and... Of course, she did not love João Garcia, otherwise we would have had a kind of Romeo and Juliet thing. That does not happen either. The person she actually loved was a half-uncle who comes from who comes from London to see his father, Margarida's grandfather, who is dying. So the novel also gets a little bit, you know... Uh, uh, a little bit strange at this point because there is at least an implied incest that is never consummated, but it could have been. So it's a, it's a very it, it, it's a very complicated family, you see. So in this case, the Mion is the guy who brings this story, but there is something else about the Mion, and that is that the Mion who immigrated to America, then came back and was in the Azores for a number of years, when, at the end of the novel, Margarida is going on this ship to São Miguel to catch a, a big ship to go to Europe, the Mion is also on board. Why? Because the Mion is going back to America. So there starts what we all know who are immigrants, the idea of Immigrating, the idea of thinking that if one could only go back, one would find happiness because that's our land and so on. Then getting there, not being able to go because you're already too Americanized and you miss America, and you sort of torn apart between being there and being here and going back and not going back and not knowing where you belong anymore. So Nemesio does that very, very well. So it is a story that he does not draw out because he doesn't have to. We are all familiar, who are immigrants, we are all familiar with that story. So, you know, he killed two birds with one stone by having, uh, by having this character, uh, by bringing this story which serves as a kind of mirror story to Margarita's story, and then also making a very important statement about immigration. So although this novel is not primarily about immigration, it also has to do with immigration because many of these characters actually went to the Azores. At one point, everybody in the Azores was an immigrant because all of us came 
from some other place. Not only Margarita's ancestors, but all of us who are of Portuguese background, we all, our families, our ancestors left Portugal to go to these deserted islands, you know, that had never seen, as far as we know, had never seen inhabitants. And, you know, so I guess all human beings are in some way or other uh, immigrants, which seems to be our destiny. And uh, so it, it is, as I said, Paulo, an extremely rich, an extremely complex book that one cannot read, you know, uh, 50 pages uh, at a sitting. It, it needs to be taken in uh, slowly so that you so that you begin to see, and read several times, so that you begin to see the, the richness of it. You know? So it is not a, uh, uh, a book that is erudite for the sake of being erudite. No, that's not what I mean. What I mean is it's a book that is so well constructed that even one of its smallest particles uh, attains to a degree of, of meaning and of importance in the novel, uh, that can be that can be interesting indeed. Absolutely, folks. We are in studio with Professor Francisco Fergundes discussing uh, Stormy Isles, uh, an Azorian tale. Uh, we're going to take a quick break, and we'll get back into kind of more why should someone read this book, other and, and not a maybe not a history book. Well, so we'll have a few more questions for the professor. We'll be right back after these messages. Alrighty, folks, welcome back to the Paul Sargiro Show. We'll be here until 5 o'clock. We are down to the last 20 minutes of our show. Uh, we are with Professor Francisco Fergundes discussing um, Stormy Isles, an Azorian tale, uh, which is his translation of Mao Tempu, New Canal. Uh, so uh, prior to the break, we kind of discussed the connections between uh, the book with uh, kind of the U.S. and the Azores. Uh, professor, uh, ultimately, why should someone read this novel as opposed to maybe a history book about the Azores? Well, uh, as, as I think I have uh, made it fairly clear, uh, history, uh, with all due respect, can give us facts, can perhaps even give us uh, interpretation of why things happen uh, the way they did, uh, the way they do, um, if we are talking about uh, modern history, uh, but um, there is such a thing as a historical novel, which uh, you know, in our Anglo-Saxon tradition, we know was created by um, by the Scotsman uh, uh, Walter Walter Scott, and uh, and of course it was uh, it was spread all over uh, all over Europe. Uh, all literatures had. Uh, historical novels, and so on. Uh, I also called uh, Maltep Nucanal, in part, but only in part, uh, a historical novel. So uh, fiction has always tried to get into history and make history uh, interesting. I met a person, uh, dear friend in the Azores, who said she read uh, Maltep Nucanal in Portuguese, which is its title. Uh, I could also discuss in part why I... I translated it the way that I did, which is not multiple canal. Multiple canal would be bad weather in the channel, uh, and I gave it the, the title "Stormy Isles uh, and the Sorian Tale." Um, but the the reason why uh, uh, the reason why Nemesio, uh, uh 
wrote this novel, of course nobody uh, can get in, inside his head, uh, was because uh, at the time that Nemesio wrote his work, uh, 1944 is when it was published. He started writing it probably three, four years uh, before uh, it was published. He had published in, in 1932 something called uh, a Surianidad, a little article, a little essay called A Surianidad. And in that particular uh, little uh, article that has had a tremendous impact uh, on Azorian letters and, and, and is still discussed to this day, Nemesio proposed an interesting idea, a novel idea. And that idea was that, yes, we are Portuguese, Yes, we, uh, our culture comes from Portugal. Our uh, culinary traditions come from Portugal. Our religious traditions uh, come from Portugal. But we have been uh, on these islands uh, for many centuries, since the beginning, uh, since the middle, let us put it that way, to play it safe, since the middle of the 15th century, and we have been fairly isolated. Portugal has not taken, you know, he doesn't get this political. Uh, I, I am adding a few, uh, a few remarks of my own. Uh, we have created a society. We have created a literature that is sufficiently unique for us to call it Azorian literature, okay? And, you know, ever since 1932, people have been, ah, no, no, this and that and that and the other. Because, you know, those who defend the Surianidad, as I do, uh, do not mean that Azorian literature is one thing and Portuguese literature is something else. No, we are not saying that. What we are saying is we have stood apart for so many centuries that we have developed accents on our on, 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 on different things that came from Portugal. For example, the holy the Holy Ghost celebrations have practically disappeared from the mainland. In the Azores, until very recently they were going strong. As far as I know, even to this day they are strong. Not only are they strong in the Azores, the Azorians took them to Brazil. And not only did they take them to Brazil, they brought them to America. You can go and see celebrations of the Holy Spirit, of the, of the Holy Ghost, in, in, in California. You can see it right here in, in, in Fall River. You can see it wherever Azorians are. Okay? So, uh, we have put... Uh, a, a certain accent, a certain emphasis on certain things. And why not call this by some name, by calling it Azorian literature, which does not mean that it's different, that it's in a different language. No, 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 it doesn't mean it. It is part of Portuguese literature, but it is different from say, the literature written in Trasmontes, or the literature written in some other part of Portugal that has an accent of its, its regional area. In other words, we are talking
talking about a regional literature. Uh, I don't think there's anything wrong with that, you know, but uh, people get all uh, upset uh, over that. Now, what is the book of Nemesius? Because he, Nemesius wrote a huge amount of literature, travel literature, uh, poetry is especially a poet, he is known especially as a poet, this novel, other novels, and so on. Uh, what about this particular novel that makes it Azorian literature? Well, the fact that it concentrates on the Azores, the fact that only one chapter takes place in the mainland, and it takes place in the mainland because the main character, the, the main male character, happens to be in the military service at that time. Uh, the rest of the novel deals with issues pertaining to the Azores. Uh, whaling was never very strong in these. Coastal whaling was not. Okay, the Holy Spirit celebrations. You can find one or two examples, such as a festa dos tabuleiros in Tumar, uh, which is related to the Holy Spirit, but it's different from our Holy Spirit celebrations. And so this novel is extremely important, and that's one of the reasons why I wanted to translate it, because it is an example that Mezu wrote after he came out after he came out with that little essay, which is, you know, about half a page, a little more than half a page, uh, in which he says, we have launched roots in the sea. You know, we are like uh, uh, like mermaids. Uh, uh, our bones uh, are made of stone, uh, and so on and so forth. In other words, in a very poetic, metaphorical language, Nemesio says, yeah, uh, we are Portuguese, we are descendants of the Portuguese, and uh, but there is something a little different about us. I mean, you know, it's something like uh, Americans of Anglo-Saxon background today uh, being ridiculed or, or being told, no, you cannot call yourselves Americans because you are really basically English. I mean, it, it, it's ridiculous. Obviously, you are talking about a country you know, that is, you know, many times bigger. We are talking about a, a very complex country with, with, with people from all over the world. But in a way, it's similar. Actually, in the Azores, we go much back, we go much farther back than, than, than America. In, in America, we go back to the 17th century. The Mayflower is the second decade or the, you know, the beginning, the first half. Uh, the first half of the 17th century. Well, in the Azores, we are talking about the first half of the 15th century, almost 200 years before. How come we are not entitled to calling ourselves, you know, Azorians and writers of Azorian literature uh, instead of uh, insisting that we uh, call ourselves? So... Uh, that is one of the things about the novel that made me want to translate it. Not that I am the kind of person who is, uh, you know, political and, and who would, uh, say, uh, defend the independence of the Azores. I think it's absolutely absurd, okay? I want the Azores to continue to be part of Portugal because I think the best that we have is Portuguese. Our character is Portuguese. We are Portuguese. But... Who has a right to tell us that we are not as different, at least, from the mainland Portuguese as a guy from the extreme south, 
Algarve is not a little different from the guy from the extreme north, be it Trás-os-Montes or Minho. You, you see my point? Absolutely. So that's, that's basically it. And so one of the attractions of this novel for me is that this novel is, in a way, uh, a novel that also demonstrates, because Nemesio was extremely conscientious of this. He was the one who invented the term Asurianidad, which which be translated as Azurianity. Uh, that there is something, not special, we're not better, we are a little different because we have been separated from the mainland for centuries. And not only that, the mainland has pretty much, until recently, ignored us because they have colonies that were many, many times bigger than Portugal. Angola was 14 and a half times bigger than Portugal. Mozambique is seven and a half times or, or, or something close to that. To Portugal, they had colonies all over the place, you know, going all all the way to Asia. Uh, so we were not important to Portugal. Okay, the Portuguese from the mainland did not know very much about us. You know, so we were sort of neglected. Obviously, when Portugal uh, had to give up all the colonies, then the Azores and Madeira, which was the only thing that was left of the old empire. Uh, became automatically more important. But even today, even to this day, the people from the mainland don't know much about the Azores as they should, except perhaps in the last few years since the Azores has become, uh, you know, a mecca for uh, for tourists, uh, including from Portugal. So this novel is uh, is also extremely important for Azorians and for uh, and for uh, people who who love the Azores, who like the Azores, who appreciate the Azores, because these uh, these issues were being debated, uh, and this novel was uh, was one of the greatest examples, not the only one, but one of the greatest examples of a novel where its subject matter is essentially the Azores, not to separate it from Portugal, but to emphasize its Azorianness. Absolutely. Folks, we're in studio with Professor Fergundes. We're going to take a quick break, and then we'll get back and start to wrap our discussion up to, uh, for what the, almost our last five minutes. So stick around. We'll be right back after these messages. Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen, to the Paul Segura Show. We're down to our last almost five minutes. Um, before our break, we were kind of discussing kind of like the Azorian identity. And the thing I wanted to mention, too, that I, I th thought some of our listeners may find interesting as we talk about kind of Azorian and Portugal, is that even within the Azores, and Professor, you can touch upon it, too, briefly, if you'd like, even in the Azores, uh, each, I each island is also... Uh, can we talk about accents? I mean, even in St. Michael, there are different accents from uh, Hapesh versus, uh, you know, Achives. And, and even in Trasada, they have a different um, accent than, um, you know, similar words. But I'm just saying the way in, the, in which they're pronounced is also different from, you know, northern Portugal versus south Portugal. And, and even within those islands, in them, even Madeira has a different dialect, if you will, too. Well, uh, uh, first of all, uh, it is true what you're saying. Uh, we 
have to be careful with the terminology because uh, I wouldn't call them dialects. A dialect is, uh, say, uh, Cape Verdean, for example, vis-à-vis -vis Portuguese. We have different pronunciations, and those derive, uh, those derive, uh, Paulo, uh, from possibly. I am not a linguist, but the, those derive. It's, it's general knowledge. They derive first and foremost from the area of the country, the area of Portugal, from where the uh, the people of that particular area uh, are from, because then it, it tended to bring people who had that accent, uh, spoke that manner uh, that uh, in, in, in the mainland, and then they brought it with them to, uh, to the island. Uh, in part, that's that. And then the rest is... Um, uh, is isolation, uh, uh, lack of education. In other words, by lack of education, I mean uh, uh, until the generation of my own father, who was born in 1916, uh, and even in my own generation, I had four years of, uh, of elementary school. That was what's mandatory. Uh, in the case of my father, it was not mandatory. He didn't go to school ever because he didn't have to be. Uh, in school, there was no mandatory uh, law that that said he had to be in school. So um, people uh, isolated, people without education, developed their own uh, their own accents, their own even words uh, for the same thing are different. I remember that from my uh, village to the next village to the next village, the names for certain uh, things, for certain objects. For certain products derived from milk, for example, had a different, a different word. He said, "My gosh, this it's only a few miles down the road." Yeah, it's a few miles down the road, but a few miles down the road, if you don't have a bicycle, if you don't have a car, if you don't have, you know, uh, you're not going to. You know, how many, how many people I knew in my childhood who have been to the city, which is 17 kilometers from my own town. You know, only two or three times during their lives, because you know it wasn't just something you could do easily. I mean, people, people lived, you know, uh, on, on the verge of, 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 of starvation. All you had to do was to to have a year in which there was no rain, you know, for you to come to the to the edge of starvation. So yes, isolation and all these uh, these other phenomena uh, of language can lead to uh, uh, to different uh, accents. The most pronounced in the Azores today are probably the one from São Miguel, the one from Terceira, uh, perhaps the one from Fayal, uh, which is said to be the closest to the mainland. And then, of course, the question is to what area of the mainland. So the point is that uh, as people get educated, as people are exposed to television, to uh, to to traveling. Uh, and so on, as, as is happening today, uh, another generation or so, and, and these differences will disappear, okay? Because these differences, uh, or what caused these differences, uh, not only in the islands, but also in the mainland, are vanishing, okay? It was mostly isolation, it was poverty, it was lack of education, and so on. And so people spoke the way they did. I mean, this happened in the United States, where uh, an accent from the South is, is, is not the same thing as an accent 
from the East Coast, uh, and that's why, you know, the, uh, they have always favored uh, people who are from the Midwest because they have a sort of uh, more neutral accent uh, when it comes to, to, to national news. At least that, that's the way it used to be. Uh, the point being that um, these differences had to do with many other things that, that were rooted in, uh, in poverty, they were rooted in lack of education, they were rooted in isolation. Absolutely. I and mean, so eventually they will disappear. I mean, to be honest, I hope they, I hope they don't, just because I think that's what makes the Azores unique in all these other islands. But that is true. That is true. But you see, unfortunately, unfortunately, Paulo, the world, not just the Azores, not just the Portuguese-speaking world, is becoming more and more and more alike. I mean, you have to do is go to Europe. And every time I go there, and I just came back from there about a, about a week ago, the more you realize that we go far and far away to see what we can see right in our own backyard. I mean, you know, we are all becoming, the world is becoming, and people try to cultivate by, by going back to the past and bringing the past a little bit forward and so on, you know, with foods, you can do only do so much of it because, let's face it, the world is becoming smaller and smaller and smaller, and one day the world is going to resemble more a village than many countries with thousands of villages, Absol unfortunately. Absolutely, and I would like to thank you again for joining us. And before we wrap up, uh, how can a, uh, someone purchase uh, your, the book uh, Stormy Isles and Azorian Tale? Well, uh, if you go to Tagus press online but you can also get it from amazon.com amazon.com actually i think already has uh this book uh, in second hand which probably costs around 10 bucks 12 dollars because uh i think the price is uh is under 20 dollars but uh some people have bought it have read it and you know uh, have sold it back to amazon so uh, i i would say amazon.com uh, and you put in um, uh, Stormy Isles uh, and Azorian Tale, and, and it will pop up at you. Great. And uh, for our listeners, I've also shared it on uh, my social media page. So if you'd like to see the picture of the book and uh, write the title down, you can do so by going to that. Um, Professor, again, I'd like to thank you for uh, joining us and uh, kind of sharing your, uh, kind of educating the community on your, uh, your translated novel. Okay, Paulo. Thanks a lot, and thanks to your listeners. All righty, buddy. Thank you. Bye-bye. Alrighty, folks, there you have it. That was Francisco Fergundes, uh, a retired UMass professor of Amher uh, at Amherst. Um, I hope everyone enjoyed the segment. I'm going to get out of here since we ran one minute over. Uh, so thank you again. We'll be back at it uh, next week again. And uh, don't forget to uh, kind of look at the social media page. I'll be updating everything on this book and also our future uh, guests. Thank you again.